What is your morning routine? Are you an early riser or do you stay in bed until the last possible minute? And do you enjoy a light breakfast, perhaps some fruit, granola, cereals, or do you prefer something a bit more substantial? Whether it's Eggs Benedict, a classic omelette like me, or a full English fry-up, breakfast is something which divides a nation as much as it brings us together. But there's one element which I believe is even more divisive. Coffee. From lattes to Americanos, piccolos and espressos, there's often more coffee choices on the menu than food options, and that's because we're all super particular about our coffee. So, in this episode, I'm taking you into the decision room as we design our own coffee, which we'll serve to our guests in our restaurant and in our bedrooms. And I'll meet a fellow chef who has embraced the country life as Julius Roberts joins me to talk coastal fishing, small-time farming, and our shared love of the Mangalitsa pig. This is Seasoned, episode 17, Smell the Coffee. Now, before we begin, it's that time again, competition time. All of my well-seasoned members went into a draw to win an incredible stay at the Abbey Inn. And later in this episode, I'll be announcing the winner, so stay tuned. But don't worry if it's not you, because a new month means a new prize package to give away, and this one is a belter. At the end of August, we'll be giving away not one, but two prizes, which means you have double the chance of winning. The top prize is a trip for two to the Black Swan, where you'll get to experience our incredible tasting menu, plus bed and breakfast. But that's not all. During the day, you'll meet me and the rest of the team. You can come foraging with me and Dickie, get a tour of the farm and the gardens. We might even let you in on the preservation station. It really is a money can't buy experience, and we can't wait to give it away. Our second prize is an amazing experience for any food lover. I've got a pair of tickets to the Home of Food Festival at Lord's Cricket Ground, where you'll be surrounded by top chefs cooking up some amazing food in an incredible setting. Check out last week's episode to get a flavour of what the Fallow Boys are cooking up, and I promise there'll be lots more besides. To make sure you don't miss out, sign up to Well Seasoned. It's just £5 a month, and you can find all the details at www.tommybanks.co.uk forward slash seasoned. On with the show, and a couple of weeks ago, you'll have heard me talking all about how we make our own drinks with help from Cooper King Distillery, and that episode got a lot of love from you guys. But it's not just boozy drinks which get our attention. Coffee is another staple on the menu, whether it's to round off your meal or to start your day with our breakfast. A proper cup of coffee is an important part of the Black Swan experience. And as chefs, we tend to drink about five a day, so it makes sense we find a good one. These days, there is so much choice, from coffee machines to types of beans, what type of coffee you actually want to drink, milky, frothy, short, long, skinny, I could go on. So, we didn't want to serve just any old coffee. The coffee you get here needs to be smooth, rich, delicious, and versatile. Good enough to drink as an espresso shot or in a long drink, at morning or night. And to come up with that, we needed expert help. Scott and Sam are from Lonton Coffee up in County Durham. Scott's background is 
well varied. He was a croupier, a jazz club owner, and a radio presenter, and I guess all three of those roles required him to drink plenty of coffee. So he set up Lonton Coffee in 2013 with a pledge to make coffee which tastes great and importantly is sustainable. Myself and my wife Sarah, we, we, uh, we, we bought a coffee roasting machine. Um, we had it brought back to an old farm building that we had. Um, and we started uh, mucking about with coffee beans, doing a really bad job. The coffee that we were producing was coffee that I'd been taught how to roast. We put them out there, like um, sent them out into the, uh, into, the, into the world and people started to, um, to like them. And um, the business has grown from there and we now roast, I don't know, somewhere between about 50 tonnes a year. So we're not huge. We roast the best beans. Uh, we do. Them, we roast it quite well, and we like to supply people who are nice. They don't grow the beans as much as Barnard Castle is a town worth visiting at any time of year. It doesn't have a climate suit to growing coffee. But the art of coffee is in the roasting at precise temperatures and blending the chosen beans together to create a coffee which packs a punch of flavour, a hit of caffeine, and a good drinking experience. So coffee, blending coffee, that was something, when we came to visit you, that was something that I sort of discovered for the first time. And obviously you read on things like certain blend on a packet, but what is it, when, if you were blending a coffee, what sort of characteristics are you looking for from different beans and how would you make what you think is a perfect blend? Okay, so I mean, fundamentally, um, if you're talking about um, a blended coffee, you're trying to provide balance. Um, and much like wine, where you might have a blend of, uh, or balance between fruit and acidity, and that's sort of what you're doing with wine. Um, with coffee, it tends to be uh, body uh, and acidity. So there's sort of a mouthfeel. So if we do a very light roasted coffee, you tend to find you get a lot of fruit flavors, and it depends on the bean, depends on how the bean's produced, but fundamentally, the lighter the roast, you'll get more fruit flavors and you'll have less body. Now that's terrific for many people that are interested in that sort of thing, but the, the UK market really is going through a, um, a change where um, traditionally, well, people, I don't know, let's say 50 plus, I guess, which I sort of fall into that category, they might have been used to drinking um, very dark roast Italian style coffee. And when you do that, you lose all the fruits, but you get a lot of weight. Okay, so what we've been careful to do is to uh, provide coffee that doesn't go completely the other way, where you lose the weight and you get lots of fruit because mm -hmm. often, especially when drinking it with milk, you end up with a, a sort of a fruity milkshake, basically. So, which nobody wants. Um, so it's a careful balance, I guess, between um, giving you enough fruit for it to be interesting and enough weight for it to give people what they want. We've worked with you guys for quite a lot of years and we have our own um, coffee blend, which is called Nessun Dorma. Uh, I think that was originally inspired by the fact I, I couldn't sleep after <laughs> coming and doing a coffee tasting with you. Yeah. If anybody's ever thought that coffee tasting would be an easy thing to do, it's not. It's much harder, I think, than wine tasting. Because what's the worst that can happen with wine tasting? You just get a little tipsy, maybe, and you can spit it out. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, drinking that many sips of coffee is it's hard work. James and I both hit the wall after cup number, I don't know, eight. And the only thing to put you up is, is even more coffee. I wouldn't even recommend you go to a coffee tasting unless you were an expert. Anyway, our final blend of coffee was worth all the effort. It's delicious. We serve it in our restaurant and the guest feedback is that it tastes great. 
But the reason we got Scott and Sam back to Old Said is that we now want to serve the same coffee to the guests in our rooms. So when they wake up in the morning or retire after dinner, they can have a coffee just the way they like it. And the guys at Lonton think they've got a solution for us. Coffee pods. So these bags, usually I open them up and they're full of beans. So these lovely um, sort of craft paper bags, which we normally decant all the beans into the hopper of the grinder and we make the espresso like we always have done. But this bag is full of pods. So I'll be really honest, I've never used a pod machine in my life. Ever? No, because in the restaurants we have, I try not to drink, well, I, have a, I do have a, a machine at home, but I try not to drink too much coffee at home because I yeah. do too much work. You just know how to use it. Yeah. No. I do know how to use it. But the thing is, obviously every hotel room I ever go into yeah, yeah. has these. Yeah. But I'm just a bit skeptical of them, to be honest. I mean, I always imagine they're manufactured somewhere many miles away. And yeah. like, they're made of aluminium, so I mean, they are recyclable, yeah. but do they actually get recycled? Good question, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, but with the ones that we brought today, these are completely compostable. And they are compostable to the point where they do, they do disappear. There's a bit of a hoo-ha. Um, with all things compostable has been for a while actually uh, in terms of what 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 counts as being compostable is it just when they go back to their constituent parts which are still in the in the in the soil forever mm -hmm. or do they actually disappear these disappear wow so so um, this whole pod so I'm holding this pod in front of me and unlike the ones that I've seen before which are like aluminium with like yeah. a foil sort of tops and this is almost looks like a plastic but that's totally plant, plant based, based. Like wow yeah. So, um, smells great. Yeah. Because you've also bought, I guess, just for reference, a supermarket, I mean, like a premium supermarket yes. pod, a dark roast. But this is in your sort of traditional. Yeah. Which it says on the back is recyclable, which is recyclable cool. through special return schemes only, mm. not suitable for. I mean, nobody's doing yeah, a special yeah. return scheme on their pod. So, really. Yeah. I mean, these... Um, and that's why we've compost. always been, I think, adverse to yeah. going down the pod route because the sustainability on those... Uh, and these compostable pods are made in the UK yeah. as well. So there's, that's got to be the future. And these bigger yeah, brands are surely so. going to be investing in that. What the guys have is, I think, the future. Because so many people use coffee pods and would like to be more eco-friendly. So this solution is perfect. But... What about how the pods actually taste? So, so what have we got to try today then? Okay, Sam. So we've got uh, your blend, yeah, um, which is like I said, made up of beans from El Salvador, uh, Brazil, and Honduras. Um, and then we've also got a blend that we blend up called Atomic, and it's a little bit bolder. Uh, we roast we roast our Brazilian and Sumatran beans in this blend. A little the bit Sumatran darker. ones are quite punchy. Um, yeah, and more yeah, just just for a point of difference, really, in our mm. blends. For an effective pod, more often than not, you do need to have a, a darker roast, and perhaps yours might be a bit too light to work in this particular um, delivery method. So, this is more of a problem. Coffee in a pod won't taste like coffee elsewhere, even if it is the same blend. But how different will it taste? Time to make some coffee and find out. So this is how a pod machine works. It's actually quite easy, isn't it? The beauty of this one 
is that we can have a look at different temperatures, different amounts to give us different flavors because you might be aware, might not be aware, but in terms of extraction of coffee, all the weight and the body of the, that coffee and essentially the fruit flavor comes out at the very start. And so the longer and more water we pull through that shot, mm. the weaker it's gonna become and also the more bitterness at the end we're gonna get. Sam is using a small portable coffee pod machine. There are tons of these on the market, from the very affordable to the quite eye-wateringly expensive. His top tip is to find a machine which has a variable heat setting. Too many of them pour a lukewarm coffee which need to be drunk instantly, or they can go too hot and burn the coffee. So spending a little bit more on a machine with a variable setting is a worthwhile investment. When it comes to making say an Americano through a pod machine, I would always recommend pouring boiling water into the cup first and then pouring just a standard espresso on top. You'll get much more um, balance to that coffee than pulling the whole pod for a full cup through that machine. But now just we're just tasting the our <coughs> normal blend from a pod. And my initial reaction is that it tastes really weak. Yep. Um, compared with out of the espresso machine next door, you get this amazing depth of flavour, acidity, fruit, cre almost like a creamy crema on it. This tastes a little bit watery, yep. um, so it feels like, which I, to be fair, that's exactly what you expected. Yep. Um, it tastes, as my mother would say, it tastes like dishwater. Oh, um, yeah. a, bit, a bit harsh. Yeah, no, I'd no, say that's... No, no, but this it, is it, our it, mother we're talking about there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, 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 but I do get some of those underlying lovely flavours, but it just tastes a bit watery. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's kind of loose. It's too... It's, it's, and so um, I think we, we knew what was coming. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just... This is, the, um, this is the issue we're fighting against. Our blend isn't packing the same punch in the pod Next, a supermarket coffee pod for comparison. Can we try a supermarket one in the machine? And it smells dark. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of, you're heading towards ashtray territory. Yeah. What's amazing about that, though, the supermarket one, there's absolutely nothing on the nose whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And then you try it and it, it, it's literally just bitter water. Isn't yeah. it? It, it, it just attacks you. Okay, so we're light and day here. It makes ours taste pretty good, if I'm honest. But we don't want to settle for coffee, which isn't exactly what we had in mind. And our blend in a pod could be better. So Scott has one more blend for us to taste. It's one of his, and he thinks it's better suited to the pod pours. It actually looks better, though, as well. Yeah. Mm. It's significantly more flavorful. So yeah. kind of weightier as well. Weightier. Much yeah. better. Um, so, I mean, I think fundamentally... This, the atomic's quite a dark, quite a dark, the, the beans themselves are good, but we do roast them quite hard. Um, but I think that's a, quite good, actually. That yeah, atomic that, one, it that's is. That's significantly better than, I think, most pods I've tried. I think that's a good product. The taste experience has confirmed what Scott suspected, that we'll need to tweak our special Black Swan blend for the coffee pods. But with those few small adjustments, we'll be able to give guests the coffee they love at the touch of a button. We might even be able to give them some pods to take home as well. Um, I think you already knew the answers. I think our Ness and Dorma is not quite bold enough for the for the context. But I actually thought your Atomic blend was really good. Fantastic. And yeah. I thought Supermarket one was blooming horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, but so we. But that's that's good. And you can't recycle that, so we're going to have to go and find some way of 
recycling that. Um, but I don't know, I think maybe do we need to pep up our Ness and Dorma? So the interest of Ness and Dorma, but with the oomph of Atomic. Yes. That's what we're after. Yeah. I think that's that's perfect. But this, as a product, I think that Atomic is really good. Fantastic. And, Thank you. and I do think that's going to stand up against any other pods, isn't it? And yeah. We've just done the tasting and it was yeah, yeah. head and shoulders above. So in that respect, I think it's a really good product. Doing projects like this, it takes time and dedication to get them right. Whenever we enter into making a new product or collaborating on a new addition, it just has to be right. Sometimes we can go through months of development before the product reaches our guests. In fact, in Dickie's case, the process can take years. But I hope one or two of you enjoy a cup of freshly brewed coffee at the Black Swan and can sip it knowing the effort we went to, to give you our ultimate blend. Now, a few weeks ago, Dickie was out in the garden recording this podcast, actually, in our tomato tunnel. And those are coming on beautifully, by the way. And I think next week, we'll have some things to say about our tomato haul. But on the edge of the tunnel, there was another ingredient which caught his eye. Peaches. So, I think this is a really cool thing. So, alongside the tomatoes, um, about eight, nine years ago, we planted a load of peach trees. So... With, it's a bit of a sort of fun project um, and we don't get fruit very often like this is the first year that I've seen fruit in in actually quite a few years now. I've never seen a crop of peaches quite like this in Oldstead. Each branch is literally weighed down with the amount of fruit and they've all got lots of growing still to do. I've got no problem with Dickie helping himself to a few of these. There should still be plenty left. In the past, what we've done, and we did this last year, the leaves have got an amazing almond scent to them. So when you rip the leaves in half and smell that, it just says almond. So that, last year, we, we'll probably do it earlier this year because it was the first year we'd actually use the leaves. We literally just um, made a sugar syrup, so equal parts caster sugar and water. Brought that up to the boil, and then per litre of syrup, we added um, 150 grams of peach leaf, chopped up. Left it for an hour to infuse, and then just strained it out, and we got this beautiful, you know, like almond essence that you would buy from a shop and use in a cake or a biscuit or whatever. Basically that, uh, and it roots, they're reducing that down uh, into a sort of thicker syrup, almost like a honey texture, and glazing uh, a beautiful root veg brioche bun as a petit four and I just think that's like part of the excitement is like I looked at these for years and sort of been frustrated and disappointed that we never got any fruit but then one day just randomly came in to pick some tomatoes broke a leaf in half and thought that's almond let's try something uh, and then it's become a product that is now in demand all the chefs want it amazing But you almost feel like the, the flavours are sort of meant to go together. You could almost imagine just like a fresh peach with some of that syrup from the leaf just drizzled over it. It's a bit like the tomatoes and the basil. It's got tomatoes and basil growing together. It just works. And it's, just, it's almost like nature's trying to tell you that something, something goes together. Yeah, imagine that. A fresh peach, 
some peach syrup and some raw Jersey ice cream. Mega. These obviously are quite a good size already. I mean, they're going to ripen uh, probably by July uh, into really delicious fruit. So we'll try and keep the, uh, the guests and the chefs away from these and see if we can actually preserve them. But I'm just kind of thinking that's like a really firm green peach. Like, could we apply the umeboshi technique to that and see if that works? So maybe we just pick a few of these and take these back to the uh, preservation station and see if we can do a little trial. So that was a few weeks ago and Dickie had a go at umeboshiing the peaches while they're still green to see if he could create something as incredible as our umeboshi strawberries. Um, I'm just trying the umeboshi technique with these as well because they're sort of like probably half to a third of the size that you'd, you'd expect to see a ripe peach. 8% um, salt and they've had two weeks now out of the proposed six and they're not great if we're being totally honest um, obviously peaches have got that classically sort of furry skin to them and I thought the salt might have broken that down but it definitely hasn't um, it's got a, quite a sort of just a very sort of green flavour to it um, if that's what they make in Japan with their unripe plums. I don't know if I want to try that. It doesn't look all that great to be honest, but again this is part of the fun of experimentation is, you know, that may or may not work, but we'll give it another few weeks and see see what happens. I don't see this as a failure. We try lots of things in Ulster which don't quite work out. But it's only by doing experiments that you can come up with things that nobody else would. And while Dickie has been hard at work trying to come up with a plan for the peaches, the ones he hadn't picked have ripened up nicely and I've got a little idea of what to do with them. My favourite thing to do with peaches, well I say mine, my wife Charlotte does a recipe where um, cut your peaches in half and remove the stone and then she just dresses them in some brown sugar and drizzles them in a little bit of masala wine or you know any other sort of sweet dessert wine would do and then she roasts them in the oven until that sugar starts to caramelize and then add a little bit more of the wine and just sort of spoon the sticky syrup that comes out of them over them and then you can either serve them with just a little bit of vanilla ice cream or just some lightly whipped cream with a little bit of icing sugar in it perfect Okay, I promised that we'd do the giveaway on our podcast for one lucky well-seasoned member to win a meal and stay at the Abbey Inn. We've opened the rooms just yesterday at the Abbey Inn, so one lucky winner will be one of the first people to stay here with us. We've entered all of our well-seasoned members from the last month into a hat, and the winner, I'm delighted to say, is... Well, this is a tricky one. We have an email address which I'm not going to read out in full, but jam, that's capital J-A-M, 1401, dot, dot, dot. You're our winner. Congratulations. Keep an eye on your emails, and we'll be in touch with all the details and booking you in for a stay really soon. And for the rest of you, don't worry. We have our star prizes up for grabs in August, and by subscribing, you're automatically in with a chance of winning.
Now, over the summer, it has been non-stop. But last week, I managed to squeeze in an hour to catch up with a fellow chef who is something of a kindred spirit. Hi, Julius. Nice to, nice to meet you. Julius Roberts loves the outdoors, so much so that he quit his inner-city chefing job to relocate to the countryside and start a farm. But while I'm in Yorkshire, he's a long way south, so I thought it'd be good to catch up and compare some notes about our approaches to farming, cooking, and everything in between. I mean, you started in almost like reverse to me, really. You started in the city as a chef, and, and now you're very much in the countryside as a farmer. I like my lessons, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I started life working in the city at Noble Rot, um, where I c- cooked for a couple of years. But they were quite grueling years, you know, chef life mm. is tough. And I decided to make the change and kind of chase that good life and moved to a small hoarding in the countryside. And I'm on a mission to kind of grow as much food and produce as much of my own food as possible. And coming from the city with no experience at all it's about that journey that learning the lessons that mother nature is teaching me the mistakes that i'm making and through that process of the last seven years or so i've been documenting that online sharing the mistakes and trying to kind of inspire and teach people along the way well, how on earth do you start that because i mean so i grew up on a farm so i guess it just was all around me growing up um and i realized that farming is I mean, there's probably as many failures as there are successes, which is not normal in most. If you take chefing, for example, if um, you cooked 100 meals and five of them weren't great and you had to do them again, that would be quite a bad ratio. (laughs) Whereas in farming, if you only had 5% mistakes, you'd be like, I am smashing this. So like that must have been a real change in mindset. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, the mistakes have been the best bit. That's Mm. what I've loved most about my journey It's you know, we all go to school. I didn't really love school. I don't think it suited me very well. But this Amen. has been an education in something that I absolutely love. And some of the mistakes have been hard. You know, farming is life and death, and it can be pretty gritty and grueling at times. And, you know, you can wake up to your favorite um, goat dead in the morning, or mm. all your chickens have been taken by a fox, and they teach you tough lessons. But then the good lessons are the best in the world. You know, the first time you pull a lamb out of a ewe that's been stuck for a few hours and you save a life, you know, it is, it's so thrilling. You know, it makes mm. me buzz just thinking about it. I think that's what's so cool about this journey is, yeah, like mistakes and failure is tough, but it's so rewarding in the farming environment. Oh, 100%. I, wrote, I read an, an article uh, where you were talking about naming animals, which is something yeah. that we do. And, and I always struggle to sort of explain exactly why I think it's important and right. Because people, usually people who don't have animals or haven't done any sort of animal husbandry say, you can't name them, can't name them, because eventually you're going to send them off to be killed and then you're going to eat them, so you can't name them. But I'm like, wait a minute, no, like they're a massive part of your life. You see these guys every day of your life and you why would you not name them? Like, mm. I don't know. I think once you understand the whole process... For me, and I don't know if you've got a, probably have a better way of describing it than me, but I feel like once you know the process, it's almost be sad not to have that relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger farms get, the more animals just become numbers. Yeah. When you're a number, you're not being treated like little Johnny or whatever. So for me, as tough as it is, like naming that animal, and I agree with you, I was always told, don't name them, don't name them, you'll get too attached and you won't be able to you know, take them in mm. at the end. But I couldn't agree 
bless, like mm. name them, treat them like your best mate, love them, you know, be terrified at the end. It should be one of the worst days of your life because then that animal has lived an amazing life. And that is the key for me. If we are to eat meat, which, you know, is a big moral dilemma and one that is hard to come to terms with, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? But if we are to, that animal has to live a good life. For animals to live a bad life, a bad death and be eaten and, you know, a lot of it wasted and all the issues that come with like consumerism, it's just not on. But if it's lived a good life, you know, that line, that moral line is a little bit closer. Hmm. So what sort of pigs do you have then? I had pigs. You have My had pigs, pigs are in the freezer, which always feels hard to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but I had mangalitsa pigs. And I thought we were one of the only places doing the mangalitsas. Yeah, they lived in our woods off acorns and windfall apples and all the weeds and pumpkins from the veg patch. And God, they were so good. I mean, pork is one thing where the differences between good pork and bad pork could not be starker, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, so we have mangalitsa. We've actually talked about it quite a lot on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> my, my favorite ever episode was when we, so we keep them in the polytunnels in the winter. Do uh, you? T- just to keep them warm. And also it's just a part of the regenerative thing. Cause pigs How do they not tear it? it? Uh, we put a little fence on the inside of the polytunnel so they wow. can't get... Get, get, can't get out and then uh we keep them in there just to keep them warm but also i just like the fact that they, they turn it over and they fertilize it and then we grow grow veg in it through the summer and um we needed to move them and one of the first episodes of the podcast we had danny jones from mcfly he came to give us a hand <laughs> and moving because i mean they were like 160 kilo animals and they're like yeah. low center of gravity and they're strong him yeah. trying to move them he didn't tell us until halfway through that he just had a knee operation and it was just like hilarious it was one of my favorite uh, moments on the farm last year but they are i think if you ever get the opportunity anyone a bit like kind of like the hoggett story but mangalitz is special on a different yeah. level it's like a barico yeah like the flavor and the flavor of the fat is mm. is incredible and i was doing a bit of research into it. it's actually one of the healthiest animal fats that you can eat um, yeah full of omega um omega oils and stuff it's it, it's phenomenal um, and the fat is where the flavor of what they've eaten goes you know so that's mm. why this whole acorn diet or chestnut diet that some pigs have makes such a big difference because that goes directly into the fat and it can be so nutty and so dark and so complex and it just you know they cook in their own fat my, my best story about moving them was once in my early days i went down with my kind of bucket of feed and some apples I thought, oh my God, this is such a nice day. You know, it was one of those November days that it's just crystal clear. The air fizzes in your nose, so sunny and beautiful. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to let the pigs have a bit of a walk. Like I've got my bucket, they'll follow me. I opened the gate and let these pigs out. And at first they were sort of, you know, looked about like, what, what do we do? You know, if you've been in this one pen all your life, suddenly being in the open world is quite a scary thing. And they suddenly just, you saw this look in their eyes <laughs> come through. And I think the wild war awakened. And like you said, these 160, 200 kilo pigs, just four of them went in four different directions. They couldn't have cared less about the bucket I was carrying. And they just went and we lived by a golf course. And it was, you know, I was calling a fire brigade. They were like, look, dude, we can't come and help you get your pigs back. And I'm chasing these animals around, like having to drag them by the legs. It took me about two hours of, you know, stress to get them back. And, you know, I closed the, the pen of the gate, the gate of the pen and just collapsed, you know, fully like fainted from exhaustion. Oh my God. This is it. I think it's work like, you know, you can't, um, 
you can't pause it. <laughs> you can't no. just go, all right, guys, just take five. I'm just going to go to Lou and get myself a bite to eat, and then we'll pick up this meeting <laughs> yeah. in a minute. Like, when the pigs are gone, the pigs have gone. Yeah. I absolutely love it. We have um, many, many WhatsApp groups in our business, and I love it when pigs escape because I just get all these videos coming through of people running around with boards <laughs> trying to get them in. And it, it's just brilliant. Like, that's one of the things that some of the chefs joke about. It's like, I've been taught how to cook, but suddenly – Tommy's dad gave me a board and told me I had to stand there. Then this animal ran at me and I just moved and let it pass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it just becomes part of, part of life. One of the things that we talk about quite a lot and, and, and I'd be really interested to get your take on is, you know, I think what you're doing from a farming perspective is beautiful. Like the, the sort of, uh, the model is exactly how I think, um, farming should be done and mm. um i think in in terms of uh, and that's in everything you know you talked about sort of the ethics of eating animals but also from an environmental point of view and and more of a holistic point of view as well i think i think it just it's the right way of doing things small is but, better but you did touch on the commercial side of things and of course like i've got a lot of we're very much the same as you but i don't i never like to chastise commercial farmers too much because you know they've also got to make a living and yeah. and you know um but the thing that i've always said is that we're very very lucky because we can farm and then go directly to the end consumer so we haven't got anybody taking the, the middleman taking the money out the middle which mm. makes the farming work as a as a as a model i suppose whereas for a lot of people it has to be more commercial because there's just no money in it which is a shame because I mean, personally, I think there should be way more subsidies for, for people farming in a regenerative way to, to, yeah. to try and sort of improve environmental things. But has that been a real challenge for you, sort of starting this journey and then making it commercially viable? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, at the beginning, I was very much a smallholder and growing food for myself and friends and family. And then now on a slightly bigger farm, it's still a small farm, but, I'm, mm. but I grow too much to just sell to that small circle. And, and it is hard to make it commercially viable for sure. Um, you know, there's no doubt that farming is one of the toughest jobs in the world. You know, it's got one of the highest suicide rates. You're working 24 seven, you know, there's never a day off. It is brutal. You know, mm. the weather, the kind of your, 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 the line of your money couldn't be finer, finer. <laughs> and often you're doing something that, you know, you know, you're, you're ha uh, harvesting this grain that, you know, you're losing money on, you know, yeah. it is, it's brutal. You've also got, you know, the press, the media constantly down your backs. Um, you know, we've got everything going on with the environment and there's so much that needs changing. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have more <clears throat> empathy for farmers, but we need change. You know, mm. we do need change. You know, the world is, you know, every single year we get, this is the hottest day of recorded. This is the hottest day of recorded. Um, you know, I think the quality of our food is getting worse and worse. Our health is getting worse and worse and, and something's got to flip. So for me, yeah, the small farm, it's tough to make it economically viable. And I do that through my other work, you know, cooking, mm. cookbooks, um, stuff like that. You know, I probably, you know, I probably break even, which I think a lot mm. of farmers are doing. And it's the subsidies mm. that take them over the line. And I, I agree mm. with you, you know, more mm. subsidies to regen farming, you know, more nature. If, I think we need more like cyclical farming. Back in the day, you'd have small farms that had... Um, you know, cows, pigs, sheep, and chickens, and grew a bit of grain. And, you know, they grew the grain to feed the animals. The chickens cleared up after the cows. You know, the sheep went in next, and then the pigs plowed it, and you started again. And I just think we need more 
mixed farms that are a bit mm. smaller and and more self-sufficient you know that's the thing a subsidy essentially means that the farm isn't managing to do it itself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hearing julius speak about his love of farming and the need for more support for the farmers it chimes with exactly how i feel there's a whole industry producing food into a system which doesn't work there's an incredible synergy between that slower way of farming but actually flavor as well like we've talked a lot about sustainability or regeneration and that's really important but then actually from a consumer's point of view you want it to to tick all them boxes but equally mm. you want it to taste absolutely delicious and for me the two go hand in hand yeah i mean they they couldn't go hand in hand more you know when something's grown well first and foremost it tastes way better and i think another thing that people forget to think about as well is nutritionally it's better mm. you know flavor is is the chemicals and the compounds when that thing which is what our body lives off you know a, a, a tomato grown when it's meant to be grown in the heat that it's meant to be grown in in the environment it's meant to be grown in, tastes unreal because it's happy whereas mm. those tomatoes that you get you know that you can just you can just look at them can't you it's not red enough they're really hard you cut into it and it's kind of it's not red it's white yeah, they taste awful because it's a not happy tomato plant it's grown in you know conditions that it didn't want to be grown in in the winter under artificial lighting not sunlight you know heating not natural warmth and that's why they taste the shadow of a good tomato you know yes the kind of heating that goes into that tomato and the artificial lighting is bad for the environment but it's also just bad for you you know there's nothing to that tomato it's not a joy to eat yeah, the, uh, for me, the best thing about seasonality is the anticipation. You know, when you're waiting for tomatoes to come back in season, waiting for courgettes, waiting for that first sweet corn, because they taste so good when you wait. You know, I find such joy in the anticipation of these ingredients to come back around. As always, I had to ask Julius about his favourite seasonal ingredients, and he had a bit of a surprise for me. What is the one thing then that throughout the year, when it comes back, you're like, I am going to gorge myself on this until it's gone again? I mean, there's lots, isn't there? When you really love food, there's a few mm. things that you get very excited about. I thought, you know, I do, I, I mean, for me, courgettes are one of my favorite things just yeah. because they are flavor sponges and, you know, they're a generous plant. They give you way more than you cook with. The flowers are amazing for stuffing, frying, all sorts of things. But I thought, you know, maybe you'd be speaking to a lot of people about that and they'd all come back with the great veg. For me, I'm going to go mackerel. You know, we're at this time of year where the mackerel are just shoaling off the Dorset coastline and walking along the cliffs in the evening with my dogs. You can literally see them kind of fizzing in the water. And if the tides are good, the weather's good, I'll always take my rod on my dog walk. And you can go down to the beach, just climb down the cliff, and you just chuck your hooks into this kind of fizzing water where the mackerel are chasing whitebait onto the beach that you can also just collect and like shove in your pocket. And I'll go home with a few mackerel. And I'm sure, as you know, like a fresh mackerel is the best fish there is. A bad mackerel is so bad, but a fresh one <laughs> is pure joy. And so for nice. me, like my favorite dish at the moment, you get, you know, fresh mackerel off the beach, grill it onto a pan con tomate with a bit of salsa verde. That is like my summer heaven. I'm, I'm getting in the car and coming down. Yeah, too. <laughs> That's, so, I mean, it's where we are, we're like, what, we 40, 50 miles inland. So that just sounds incredible. That was just so far away from what I thought you were going to say. But obviously, you know. I wanted to give you a curveball. Julius told me he has a book coming out in September all about his journey into farming life. So you've got a, a new book out soon. Yeah. Uh, when's that out then? And what's it called? That's out on the 28th of September. And it's called okay. The Farm Table. And it's a, 
you know, kind of hyper seasonal cookbook set across the year with lots of stories and tales from the farm really tying in, you know, why that food comes about, about when, you know, why it tastes good when it does. It's kind of farm stories with the food intertwined, quite diary-esque. Beautiful. I mean, you should, are you going to audio book it as well? You should definitely audio book it. I would quite like to. I'd like to hear the diary entries. Um, I love the, uh, the hype. I love the term like, hyper seasonality because, um, and I think so much in terms of books as well, you look at seasonal cookbooks, they're kind of broken into spring, summer, autumn, winter. Um, when I wrote a book, I did it in three seasons because I was like, we just don't have spring where there's any produce up here. So I did the first six months of the year was the, hung- the hunger gap. And then the time of abundance is like basically now through till, um, you know, sort of uh, middle of September, we still got so much good stuff. And then the preserving season, which is when you all are the wild foraging, the apples and the brambles and the root vegetables and stuff to preserve. And that's kind of how the three seasons sort of work up here. But I love the fact, I'm really excited then now to read your book in terms of hyper-seasonality because it isn't really about months, is it, or seasons. It's actually about weeks, what's mm. available this week. Um, and, and I think when you're living the way that you're living, I used to say this, that I reckon if you dropped me in Oldstead, I could tell you roughly within a week or so what time of year it was, even in the depths of winter, because there's certain things which just wouldn't be there on the 12th of March, but they are there on the 20th of March or something like that. There's something that me and Dickie talk about. It's like, look at a picture and then you have to try and say what <laughs> day that was, which I know sounds like crazy, but I think no, when I love in the life. But when you live in the lifestyle that you're living, I know it would be a challenge, but and obviously we could never actually do it because it would be physically impossible. But if we could just drop you on your farm on a day, I reckon, what do you reckon, you could get within a week of getting it right? Yeah, they're like the moments of the year, aren't they? Um, you know, for me, I think as a cook as well, you're so intertwined because you're yeah. looking. You know, you're looking for that mushroom. You're looking for that ground elder. You're looking for the wild garlic or the hawthorn berries, whatever it is. Mm. And then for farming too, you know, we've got the other ties of the year, um, haymaking, sheep shearing, the different flowers that come out at a certain time, you know, the flowers that we're waiting for because we want them to seed before we cut our hay. So you can, you know, you really can pinpoint and it, it's sort of romantic, but it's so true. And I think, you know, that's the great thing about small farms and when, you know, the, the actual food you're producing is really, you know, loved by the chefs and the, um, you know, consumers that it's going to because it, it kind of forces and and revels in that intimacy with your connection to nature. Listen, Julius, thank you so much for, for coming on. I feel um, very a kindred with you in terms of your, uh, your way of looking at the world. And I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, good luck with everything you've got going on um i'm sure i mean the farm's not going to stop for anyone but you've also got your book coming out when's your book coming out september 28th the farm september table. 28th farm table i really look forward to that i'm definitely uh, definitely going to give that a read and um i'm just going to try and i'm going to go home now and try and persuade my wife to take a little summer holiday down to dorset and we'll uh, we'll come and uh, fish for some mackerel with you yeah you're always welcome thank you so much for having me on it's you're very inspiring tommy and it's a pleasure to be here Thank you very much, mate. Thanks for thanks for coming on. I hope you found the conversation interesting. I know I did. I'll be looking forward to showing Julius around our farm later this year, provided he takes me fishing in return. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. Well seasoned members, you should spot your monthly newsletter in your inboxes today, Wednesday. Loads of interesting stuff in there from me and the team. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll see you soon.